You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, we are in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 in particular. We are continuing our Advent series called Christ of the Carols. Uh, and as Bob was just a- announcing, that's hard to believe that it's a week from today that we'll be uh, in this room celebrating Christmas. Excited to have any of you who are still in town and uh, aren't traveling and able to be here and worship with us. It's going to be a really sweet day, uh, I think, that day to be gathered on Christmas Day. We don't get to do that every year uh, just to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus. Uh, but as you've been hearing already in our liturgy, as you heard at the Advent wreath this morning, on this fourth Sunday in Advent, We are celebrating, we are anticipating love. And so we're going to look at a Christmas carol this morning that focuses on the attribute of God's love. Love Came Down at Christmas uh, was written by Christina Georgina Rossetti. And if that name sounds familiar, uh, it's because she also wrote In the Bleak Midwinter, which was the the carol that we looked at several weeks ago when we first opened this, uh, this little series. So it's, it's interesting, at least to me, uh, that someone who, who was known primarily and wanted to be known primarily as a poet actually is better known now for her two Christmas carols that became, became famous. Just a little example of how the stuff we hope we're known for and the stuff we're actually known for in life isn't always one and the same. But Love Came Down at Christmas uh, also began as a poem, and it was uh, first printed in 1885, And then about 20 years or so later, uh, was set to music and was introduced as a Christmas carol in the Oxford Hymn Book in 1908. Uh, As will quickly become obvious, uh, this carol is all about the love of God. It's all about the love of God. If If you count the word lovely, then the word love appears 12 times in this song. And that actually stands out even more because it's it's just not that long of a song. Uh, it's really short. The three stanzas of this carol take about 20 seconds to read in total. And so it's actually a common struggle that, that composers and musicians have faced over the last century or so of how can you take these words and make a song that lasts more than a minute? Uh, it's actually a real, a real challenge musically to, to do that. But concise as it is, it packs an incredible amount of beauty and truth. Uh, I think it's, it's one of many examples that we could point to of how uh, poetry can have this unique ability to engage the heart, to engage the mind in ways that, that simple prose often cannot. So let me read the lyrics for us. You can follow along in that little insert that's in your, your bulletin there. Love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Stars and angels gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token, love be yours and love be mine. Love to God and others, love for plea and gift and sign. The inspiration for this Christmas carol comes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Uh, the Apostle John is, is sometimes known as the Apostle of Love. Uh, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, is known for writing a lot about faith, 
Peter writes a lot about hope. James writes a lot about good works. John, both in his gospel, his account of Jesus' life and ministry, as well as in his letters, he writes a lot about love. He's even known as the beloved apostle. And so this text, uh, the, the song, the carol, mentions the word love 12 times. This text, these few verses, mention that word 11 times, almost just as much. And in this passage in particular, uh, we learn not only what love is, but who love is. So here's the big idea for us this morning. It's that God personifies love. God personifies love, and he has revealed his love most clearly in the sending and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And then we get to perfect God's love as we love one another. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into to 1 John chapter 4. Let me pray. Um, God, you are the God of love and of power and of so many other attributes. You are revealed to us in your word, in accounts of prophecy and fulfillment, all of which direct our attention to Jesus. And so we ask that you would speak to us now as we hear your word proclaimed, uh, that we might uh, open our hearts to you, Jesus, that we might yearn for your coming again in glory, and that we might love you sincerely from the bottom of our heart with joy. We pray that all in your name. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. The three stanzas of this Christmas carol, uh, rooted as they are deeply in 1 John 4, they highlight for us three remarkable dimensions of love. The first stanza is all about love personified. The second stanza is all about love praised. And the third stanza is all about love perfected. So love personified, love praised, Love perfected. First, let's talk about love personified. In that, those op- that opening stanza, uh, Christina Rossetti uses the word love as a proper noun. You'll notice it's, it's capitalized, the L in that first stanza. So she's using the word love to refer to Jesus. It's not love in some generic sense that came down at Christmas, that was born at Christmas. It's Jesus who came at Christmas, Jesus who was born. And it's John's letter and specifically the text that we read today, that invites her to say that, to to write that. Uh, John says here, it's not simply that love is from God, verse 7, but verse 8, that God is love. And furthermore, that that this love, verse 9, was made manifest, was revealed when God sent Jesus Christ into the world. 
So Jesus is the embodiment, literally, he's the literal embodiment, the enfleshment of love. In the original language, uh, the word for love here, agape, uh, means affection and benevolence. It means to, to seek another's good at great cost to yourself. And so when John writes here that God is love, he means that, that God is the ultimate personification of that kind of sacrificial benevolence, that kind of affection. That God is the one who embodies it fully and completely. In fact, that you and I can only ever define love. We only know what love is because we have seen it on display in God. John Piper put it this way. He said, love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. Now love, as many of you know, is not the only attribute of God. God is also good and holy and eternal and jealous and righteous and on and on we could go. But notice, even in that short little sample, the other attributes of God are adjectives. They're adjectives. They are words that describe God and describe his activity. John could have written here, God is loving. Loving is the the adjective, right? And of course, that would have been completely true. It is true. God is loving. But that's not what John actually wrote, is it? John wrote, God is love. A noun, the thing. He's saying God is that thing. So some people focus exclusively on God's love to the neglect of his other attributes. Uh, Specifically, some people, for example, refuse to believe that God will judge the world in righteousness, that God will punish people who persist in their sin. And that kind of reductionism ignores and rejects a lot of what the Bible teaches. It, It turns people, it turns us into universalists, who believe that God just automatically saves everyone. It causes a lot of people to reject the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It causes people to not really see their own deep personal need to trust in Jesus and trust in his work. But I actually don't think that's the error that most of us gathered in this room are are prone to make. I think instead there's another danger for a lot of us, and that is that we will minimize the uniqueness of love as an attribute of God that will downplay it too much. So here's what I mean. The the scriptures very clearly teach that God has wrath against sinners. But it never says in scripture that God is wrath. And, And Puritans like Thomas Goodwin, for example, would say this. They would say, it's God's, in God's nature, there's actually something more natural about love. Something more naturally about love flows out of God in his nature. It's not that that's the only thing there, but there's something more natural about it. Now, where would they get that idea? From the Bible. It's a good place to get their ideas. The scriptures say that God delights to show mercy, but it doesn't say that he delights to judge. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It says that God, scriptures teach that God brings affliction But lamentations he does not afflict from the heart. The scriptures teach that God is provoked to anger, but he never has to be provoked to love. Love is 
is there. It's always there. It flows much more naturally out of God because God is love. He is love personified. So don't be a universalist. Short little application point for today as you go home. Don't be a universalist. Uh, Don't reduce God to a single attribute, but do be more emphatic about God's love than you might be inclined to as a theologically conservative Christian. Can I say it that way? Uh, It's not theologically liberal to talk a ton about the love of God. It's biblical. It's biblical. Uh, It's tragic to me that, for example, mainline Protestant churches, uh, which are increasingly just an exit interview for Christianity, Right? You go there, and it's not long before, tragically, you're not a Christian anymore. It's tragic to me that that, that group seems to kind of own the emphasis on God's love. And the theologically conservative Christians like, have to be the ones that like to only talk about judgment or only talk about wrath. Can we just say this morning, they don't get to own that. The Bible talks about all of these things together. We should talk about all of them together, and we should emphasize love maybe more than we're inclined to do. And so if I can, I just want to offer a little experiment uh, this morning, a little litmus test. Uh, How would you, just initial instinctive response, how would you answer this question? Does God love everyone? Does God love all people? And I want you to be honest. Did you hesitate? Did you hesitate when I asked the question? Did you have to stop and think about it for a while? If so... I just want to humbly submit to you that's probably because you have convoluted a simple and beautiful truth that is foundational to our faith and the God we worship. A lot of us are from what's known as Reformed theological traditions, Reformed theology. Uh, So we emphasize, for example, that God is in complete control of salvation, We emphasize that God predestines, that God chooses us. Actually, as John goes on to write here in this passage, just a few verses later, that we can only love God because he first loved us. And that's completely true. It presents some difficult questions, and one of the most difficult is, why does God then choose some but not choose all? And so as some people, some of us even, try to remain faithful to that Reformed theological grid, we can start to think, well, I guess... God must not really love everyone. If he doesn't choose everyone, he must not love everyone. He must only love some. And I'll be the first to admit this morning, it is difficult at times to hold the attributes of God together. It is is difficult to wrestle with questions about how God is completely sovereign, completely in control over all things, and at the very same time that human beings are completely responsible for their actions. But God forbid that we would ever obscure so necessary and so beautiful a truth. God forbid that we would ever let a theological grid, one that I deeply appreciate and ascribe to, God forbid we would let that overrule what Scripture is plainly laying out for us. God is love. And God so loved the world, the whole thing, that he sent his son Jesus into the world. God desires that all people, 1 Timothy 2, would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So Liberty Church, does God love everyone? Yes. Thank you for not making that rhetorical. Does God love the world? Yes. Does God love all people? Yes. Amen. Thanks be to God. That is our hope in this world. He is the personification of love. It's the personification of love. Second, 
Second, let's talk about love praised. Love praised. The second stanza of Love Came Down at Christmas is about our praise or our worship. And so Christina Rossetti writes, Worship we the Godhead. Worship we our Jesus. Why do we worship God? Why do we praise? There's a lot of reasons we could list. But specifically, we praise, we worship, because his love has accomplished our salvation. People, as you know, use the word love to mean all kinds of things. And that's not just true in our cultural moment, although it certainly is. But a lot of the time, when people use the word love, it's a cheap substitute for the real thing. Uh, Love has become this really obscure, kind of fluffy word which encompasses any kind of warm feeling, any kind act toward another person. Even uh, one of the, the creedal statements of our secular society right now, love is love. We hear that, and I think deep down we, we know that's just not true, though, because it's not all the same, and people aren't using that word the same way. And even if we agree on stuff, which we don't, uh, with broader secular society about how they use that terminology, we still, in our own definitions of that word, use it differently all the time. We praise the love of God, though. We praise the God who is love because there is deep substance to his love. It's not fluffy or obscure at all. See, as John writes in this text, the love of God is built on the substance of both the sending and the suffering of Jesus Christ. The sending, of course, is his incarnation. It's it's what we're celebrating each and every Advent season in particular. That Jesus came into the world, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. And so look again there at verse 9. John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. What's the picture of love among us? That God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. When you and I think about the substance of God's love, our minds will probably run to the cross, as well they should. That is the ultimate picture of the love of God. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But this morning, and especially during the Advent season, recognize that the cross required the incarnation. That the death of Jesus on our behalf first required the life of Jesus. First required the birth of Jesus. And actually, every single week when we come to this table to receive communion, when we remember that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood, recognize in that moment that he first had to take on that body that he first had to be born with that flesh and blood so that he might then offer them up for us. So we praise the love of God. We praise the God who is love, not only for the cross, but for the incarnation. Not only for the suffering of Jesus, but that God sent him into the world in the first place. As John then continues, though, in verse 10, God's love does have everything to do with Jesus' suffering, too. He writes there in verse 10, it's not just the incarnation, but propitiation. In this is love, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, it's a big word. It's important for us to open up and and unpack and define when we use it. Propitiation is a sacrifice. And specifically, it's a sacrifice which satisfies or turns away God's wrath against sin. So in the Old Testament, uh, under the law of Moses, this is why God established the sacrificial system 
He, he also is a holy God, a righteous God. He can't just pass over, do an end around, skip over sin forever. He actually has to deal with sin. And so in the sacrificial system, the wrath of God fell upon an animal sacrifice instead of on the sinful people. Those sacrifices, and the author of Hebrews in particular makes this clear, those uh, sacrifices were a shadow anticipating the substance of Jesus. So Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And the suffering of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, is that ultimate picture of, of God's love. So many of you know this already, but don't miss this, church. Here, in the very definition of love, right? John says, this is love. Here it is. Everybody pull out your paper, take notes, John says. This is love. In that definition, there's an unmistakable reference to God's wrath. So as complicated as this will feel at times, the attributes of God do hold together. They hold together. And the substance of God's love, the substance of his love is inextricably tied to propitiation. In his phenomenal book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott explains it this way. He says, It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in love, that was his motive, in love, undertook to do the propitiation, and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Stott goes on to write, Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. And men and women, this is the love with which you have been loved. In a world where people use that word and it means nothing, or means very little, this is the substance with which you have been loved by the God who created you, by the God who upholds and sustains you. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know this love? Do you know this love? Do you know this God who is love? Some of you might be here asking questions about what you believe. Some of you are maybe here It's the Christmas season. People start talking more about Jesus during the Christmas season. Maybe you're wondering, what is Christianity all about? And I just would say to you this morning, this is it. This is what Christianity is all about. This is the absolute center of what we believe as Christians, that that you are loved by God, the one who created you in his image. That you rejected that, that you rebelled against him, that you are a sinner subject to his wrath but that you are so loved by God that he will take his wrath upon himself rather than pour it out on you. That's what we believe. And is that not the the deepest need of of our human hearts? To know that we are loved, to know that we are lovable, when there's so much around us and even a lot in us, inside of us ourselves, that screams the opposite sometimes? For all of the cheap counterfeit ways people might use this word love to prop each other up, you have the substance of the real thing right here. God personifies love and he has shown it most clearly to us in the sending and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, when you you doubt that you are loved, when you hear that condemning voice in you, that shaming voice in you that says you're not lovable, Lift your eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look there. 
Look to the propitiation of the cross. Look to the incarnation that enabled that in the first place. This is the love that we praise when we sing Love Came Down at Christmas. Worship we the Godhead who loved us like this. Worship we our Jesus who was sent and who suffered like this for us. One question remains, though. As Christina Rossetti puts it at the end of that second stanza, but wherewith for sacred sign? We don't really use maybe that language as much. Maybe you guys have a better vocabulary than me. But what is she saying there? In other words, she's saying, what sign can we possibly give to show gratitude for this kind of love? Uh, Is there any kind of worthwhile response we can offer having been loved this way? And it turns out there is. Turns out there is. So third and final, let's talk about love perfected. The way that we respond to being loved like this is by living our own lives of love. Love for God and love for others. Uh, The Apostle John, he heard Jesus teach probably many times over that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. John heard Jesus teach that the entire law and all of the prophets hangs on those two commandments. Love for God and others. But friends, I hope you see this morning, this is so much more than a command. So much more than a command. There are days when the command and obedience to the command is all we have. Where it's really hard to love someone. There's particular people, some of which we're about to see because it's Christmas and the holidays. There are particular people that are just really difficult for us to love. But there is so much more than obedience involved in living our own life of love. John says here that the love of God, this indescribable, self-giving, costly love with which we have been loved, is perfected in us. It's perfected in us. John Stott, again, explains it this way. He says, We must not stagger at the majesty of this conclusion. God's love, which originates in himself and was manifested in his Son, is made complete in his people. And he goes on to write then, God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us or among us. So this is kind of like when the Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossians, says that he is, Paul is, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus. And when he says that, you're, you read that and you're like, what? And like, is something not sufficient about the sacrifice of Jesus? Is something lacking in that? That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying that the news of the afflictions of Christ and the display of the depth of the love that would lead him to suffer in that way, that is incomplete until it is put on display before the, the very eyes of the Colossians in Paul's life. And so likewise, John's saying here, it's not that God's love is in any way imperfect. There there is no greater love than God's love. We can only define love as we see it in God. But God's love is only perfected. It's only completed as it is displayed, as it is brought to bear in flesh and blood ways in this time and place through us, through our lives. See, there's a kind of love that is only possible among people who have been loved like this, who have received this kind of love from God. That's why John says in verse 7 that anyone who loves has been born of God. People who are transformed by God's love are empowered to love differently, 
to love truly. It's not that people apart from Jesus are incapable of any kind of love. There's still common grace. There's still a type of love people can express simply by virtue of being created in God's image. But if it's not rooted in, if it's not sourced by the love of Jesus Christ, if it, if it does not have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as the ultimate object of love, then it's ultimately a watered-down, incomplete version of it. Or think of it this way. If God is love, as John says here, then any love of ours which fails to honor him as such is just always going to fall short. It will always be incomplete inherently. It will always be, at least in some way, sub-love. So how incredible is it that we, by the way we love each other, can perfect the love of God? And I just invite you to, to consider that today and this week in this Advent season. Do you see how that is so much more than obedience to a command? It's so much more of an opportunity for us, and it's what Christina Rossetti writes about. It's our token. It's our sacred sign. I don't know how specifically she was pulling each and every lyric from the text of 1 John 4, but in the passage that we read this morning, John says the phrase, love one another, three separate times. And they line up really well with the closing line of Rossetti's Christmas Carol. Love for plea and gift and sign. In verse 7, 1 John 4, love is our plea. John is saying there, he's pleading with his beloved brothers and sisters in Jesus, let's do this, church family. Let's do this, men and women. Let's love one another. In verse 11, love is our sign. God has loved us. Our love for each other is the sign that we've been loved, that we've received that love from him. And then verse 12, love is our gift. It's the gift that we can give to each other. It's the gift that we can give to the world. God's love is perfected. It is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, John is writing here at the end of his text. But in Jesus, John did. John saw saw God in the love that Jesus had for John. No one has ever seen God, but in the way that other Christians have come around you in your life, you have. And no one has ever seen God, but through us, the people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, the people of the Harrisburg region, they can. They can, and by the grace of God, they will. So men and women, who can you love today? Who can you love this Advent, this Christmas season? Who needs to see the very love of God, the God who is love, on flesh and blood display through your life, even today? This is a, this is a short and simple carol with a simple message. But don't mistake its simplicity for lack of substance. Love, properly defined, rooted in the God who is love, is the most significant. It's the most substantial thing in the world. And you, Christian, have the opportunity to perfect that love as you love others. So this Christmas, let us love one another, not merely as obedience, but as the token, as the sacred sign, as the plea and the gift and the sign that it is. You, Christian, you, men and women, have been loved by the God who is love. You have been loved by the substance of the sending and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so may you perfect God's love in your love for one another. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we just confess that we are not worthy of being loved the way that you have loved us. That you, to make us in your image, to create us in love, and then to redeem us in love, that you so love the world that you sent Jesus into it. I just pray that as simple as, as this can sound, as elementary a principle, as central to the Christian faith as this can, can feel, that you would that it would be anything but that for us, that it would be so substantial, so weighty a truth in our hearts and minds that we would not be able to help but, but pour out love for other people so that it might display yours. And as we come to this table, may we remember that, that this is the ultimate picture of your love, that you gave your body and shed your blood, that you came into this world in the first place so that you might do that. And would you empower us by your spirit to perfect your love. May your love really be perfected in us. We pray that all through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.